0: Hello. Hi, Winnie. Good to see you. Ezra. so good to see you. How are you doing? Well, I don't know whether I'm coming or going sometimes. <laughs> but I imagine something similar is be going on for you because... Have you moved now? Has the big move happened? Yeah, you know, the movers
1: have come, so I don't have any furniture. And apparently it's going to show up in Atlanta in one or two weeks,
0: we hope. Um, oh, wow. So
1: we're just in the middle of it. Hey, and have you all started church yet?
0: Um, yes, we're meeting on a Sunday morning and we're meeting on a Thursday evening as well. So Thursday evening, we have an opportunity for some reflection, uh, for some storytelling, some music. And it's lovely actually. We're just trying to create a bit of a, um, a safe space, a bit of a bubble for people as, we, as restrictions lift. In the UK, this coming week at the point of recording, all the restrictions are gonna lift and it's up to us how we interpret what's going on. So mask on, mask off. It's not Karate Kid, but that's what's happening over here. So there's lots of anxiety in the air. It's quite an interesting turbulent time over here in the uk what are things like in nyc i
1: think turbulence a good word um so things are, are pretty open i think we open fully if if we haven't already this week um and we have the delta variant here um as as in other parts of the world and um and we've hit this um limit on people don't seem to be getting vaccinated anymore <clears throat> so people that that want it have it and so trying to figure out how to Get others vaccinated. Well, and be, and in those states where there are a lot of people that um, that do not want to be vaccinated, and it's become very politicized here. Um, the rates are just going through the roof. The hospitals are filling up again. It's terrifying. And if we that now have flexibility about who can come to church, how we gather, um, do we ask? It's a very political um, thing to ask in this country, including in New York where I am, definitely in Atlanta where I'm going. Um, it's terrifying, frankly, um, and continues to be as as volatile um, in many ways um, as it's been, Um, but maybe similarly to your context, um, there's remarkable organizing and strong voice. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones might be the last story that you all have seen about what's happening here. She's a writer for the New York Times who was offered a professorship um, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and um, offered it without tenure, which is just shocking. You know, she's a MacArthur genius. Um, and the fight around that about worthiness, who gets to tell the story, and the reason she was denied tenure—it was very uh, clear—is that that she has she is writing the the story of American history truthfully, about the um, the experience and also the contribution and the stories of Black people, um, and how slavery um, is the root of almost every institution that is confusing in this country. Something that just doesn't make sense, like the, the economics of it don't make sense, or something like that. It's always slavery, right? Um, Actually, this is a great segue into our guest today. Um, So Mm. so, that story has been raising this conversation of of who Black people are in America. So my friend Glenna, and I'm using the word friend very loosely, um, we don't know each other very well at all, but I remember her because when I was going to seminary, when I was at Union about 20 years ago, she was at General. We were literally the only non-white women in um, ordination processes in formal seminary training in the Episcopal Church. And there, there had been many before us, many after us, but we were in this weird window where there were very few, um, and if there were any, they were second or third career. Um, so as young women in our twenties in school. And so I remember her name because there was another one um, and she was over at General.
0: Sorry, Winnie, um, what, what's General?
1: Oh, excuse me. General um, is the, it's, its its title is the General Seminary of the Episcopal Church. Um, so okay. it's, it's, it's basically our one of our original seminaries. Um, and it's in New York City, and it's down in okay. Chelsea where I live, um, and I was up at Union, which is up um, by Columbia in Harlem. Um, so I know her from then, and she's had a remarkable career as a priest, um, and now finds herself in, um, in Washington, D.C. in these incredibly volatile times, and, and she's from Oklahoma. and from Texas, so it tells a different story of America and race than we're used to telling. Glenda comes from a professional family, um, and there, there were a lot of professional African-Americans in the community I grew up in. So not immigrant, a different story, right? The families descended of enslaved people, um, but many generations of uh, professional accomplished people that had built whole towns for their own safety um, and had built in part of segregation was building their own communities. Um, many of um, which in this country had been wiped out, burned. Um, and there are very interesting stories of that and the reta- reclaiming of those stories um, that she could tell us a lot more about.
0: Thank you, Winnie. Well, thank you for organising this. Shall we have her come in? Glenna,
1: good
2: morning. Oh, it's morning here.
0: <laughs> Hello. Good afternoon here from Manchester. Hey, where of, whereabouts are you, Glenna? Uh, I am
2: in Maryland.
0: OK. I live
2: right outside of D.C
0: yeah uh-huh i I went there once and I ended up going to um a church that had had a very strict dating regime so you had to get the permission of the senior leadership of the church if you wanted to date someone um in the church and so that was uh that's my memory of so Maryland.
1: perhaps not an episcopal church I think, is <laughs> I don't think I yeah, it's right not it's definitely
2: not not the church that I'm currently serving now <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> Glenna, tell us about your church <laughs> tell us about Epiphany
2: uh, Epiphany is in downtown DC it's not far from St. John's Lafayette Square which is right across the street from the White House and it's a beautiful beautiful building
0: Glenna one of the things we like to ask our guests is how would you describe home what is home for you
2: That's a great question. It feels very complicated. Home right now is, is Maryland. It's, it's the place where I feel safe. It's the place where my uh, children are, my, my spouse. If I say I want to go back home to, to do more work, I would say Atlanta. Um, That's where I claimed my vocational voice, claimed my voice as an adult. Um, I lived in Atlanta for about 15 years, I think bought my first house. Um, but recently, I claim uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma as as my home. I was born and raised in Oklahoma. That's where my family house still is. My mother uh, still lives in the house that I grew up in. So
1: that's the land from which I came is in Oklahoma. Wow. So Glenda, part of what I was telling Rosie and Azariah earlier is um, that the story of America and race is so um, Is so complex. I grew up in a community where there were lots of professional Black people who had come from generations of professional Black people who had stories of displacement from other parts of West Texas, um, other parts of the South, but not, uh, but in places where they had built, like they were, they were founding members of communities. Um, mm-hmm. and the Tulsa race massacre massacre kind of um, the retelling of that story in our public life in America has raised those stories again of um, of history and and you you've been a part of telling that story in our church can you tell us about that
2: sure uh, so in 1921 we can just talk a bit about Greenwood for those not from Tulsa Tulsa is in the, you know, people say, oh, are there any Black people in Tulsa? There used to be lots of Black people in Tulsa. And uh, Greenwood was this booming Black Wall Street. And it was not the only one, uh, but it was this booming Black Wall Street and uh, commerce. And people would go down there to to buy clothes and go to church. And uh, a man was in an elevator with a woman downtown and she screamed. And he was arrested. There was real no ac- accusation. Some folks went
0: to... Uh, was he a black man, Glenna? <laughs>
2: yes. Yes, yeah. he was uh-huh. a black man, white woman uh-huh. in an elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all sorts of chaos happened. He's falsely accused. Nobody knows what happened in the elevator. Nobody knows why she screamed. Uh, the result was the entire destruction of... Of Black Wall Street. And that, that's really from downtown Tulsa all the way north. And Tulsa continues to this day to be segregated north and south. Um, so the, the massacre that killed hundreds and hundreds of people, the implications continue to this day. Greenwood is still in the process of being rebuilt. My father's best friend, his grandfather had uh, built the first, the Oklahoma Eagle. If you look it up, it's the, the black newspaper. And, you know, they're still trying to keep that office going, that paper going. That's where you got black news. And so my family growing up was part of the movement, the raising of money, the organizing around political figures to maintain that area and continue to bring revenue into the area so that so that it could be restored to its former glory and I you know we're that that process is still ongoing
0: gosh and um I'm curious how was that story relayed to you was that through members of the community was that mainly through kind of reading about it secondhand sources
2: Right. I, you know, I was thinking about, people have asked me that. How did you, how did your family teach you? About, did you learn about it in school? I, there was not, a, I do not remember a point in time where it wasn't part of my understanding. We were always down on Greenwood. Again, that's the church my grandmother went to. So, you know, even as a child, there were still burned out buildings standing. My father was part of the, the Greenwood Jazz Hall of Fame that's down there now, the Greenwood Cultural Center that what my family and uh, the Oklahoma Eagle family and other prominent uh, members, black members of the community, we just that was just part and parcel of my existence as as a youth. And then um, we, we did some history in fifth grade or sixth grade about Tulsa history. Some of the people who were descendants of the race riot were still alive and so we did i did an oral history probably in seventh or eighth grade maybe just listening to them talk about the stories of being down there and living through that
0: Hmm. just makes you think of these moments of historical rupture and like it's like a fork in the road where a society was building if if that had not happened are there thoughts or ideas about what the trajectory of the Black Wall Street was, what it could have led to?
2: I would say that all of the massacres, and that was not the first one, that was 1921. There had been numerous uh, riots and destruction of Black property in the 1800s, the late 1800s. It's like this um, historical desire to, disrupt and destroy intergenerational wealth, right? Because wealth is, is accumulated generationally and in the Americas, it's through land. Um, and if you, if you have land, you can have wealth, but if you destroy the land, you've destroyed generational wealth. And I think that, was, that just historically was being played out for black communities.
1: You know, I'm sure, Glenna, you saw this story, um, but for our listeners in the UK of um, where George Floyd's family was from, right, Mm -hmm. where in North Carolina and his, you know, his great grandfather, I believe, or great, great grandfather, but I think it was his great grandfather, just had an enormous amount of land, very successful farmer, um, and had it taken by white people, which is a classic American story and that family ended up in uh, in public housing where you can't own you can't own anything and they're heavily policed communities. And Glenna, you might know Nell Gibson, she's kind of a yeah. you know legend in the Episcopal Church. She writes in her book that she told her parents as an adult that one of her first memories was this vague running and things were on fire. And she mm. was with her parents. And she's, she's, she writes about telling them that and everyone getting quiet and saying, you couldn't have been three years old. How could you have remembered that? And her first memory was that their neighborhood was being burned to the ground and they were running um, to protect their families. And she's not, you know, 120 years old. So it, it, not that long ago, that was in West Texas.
0: Mm-hmm. So Glenna, I was wondering, would that sort of trauma, that kind of rupture, What was the impact? How did it begin to to shift and galvanize people? You speak about the organizing that happened, um, the, the resilience and the resistance within the community. What did that look like? What was the texture of it?
2: You know, my father grew up, he was born and raised in Okmulgee, which is about 45 minutes outside of Oklahoma. He went to Morehouse for undergraduate and then went to Howard for graduate school. So the first medical school, first the first person in his family to leave and go be educated. He came back to Tulsa, uh, started his practice on the north side. I know he had a dream that black people on the north side, black and poor people, uh, and that include poor white and, and, and Spanish speaking folks, would have the opportunity to have access to medical care and that they would be able to get all of their medical needs met on the north side without having to go all the way to the south side, because that's a trip. Uh, and so I, that's what I was born into, this organizing on the north side to ensure that Black and poor people had access to all that they needed to to take care of themselves. So he he built a medical practice that had dentistry, physical therapy, a pharmacy, radiology, all and medical uh, mental health services all within one place. One of the things I really remember was the fight to get bus service running past. I think, you know, it's Apache, Apache Street, because that Apache and Peoria is the demarcation. So as we talk about organizing, we would go to churches and you start at the church on Greenwood. That's where you start. You get Greenwood invested and then you keep moving north. And then Morningstar Baptist, you just there were prominent black churches, Baptist churches that you you got buy in from and then you make change happen. So that was, you know, we would just go to all these different churches and talk to people about, you know, Dr. Reed is in in the church today, you know, Dr. Reed, did you want to share something with us? And, you know, my dad would stand up and say something about, you know, we need to get together and and make this happen. And, you know, let's have a party and invite these candidates to come talk to us. And this is the one we like. So that's, that that was just, I was just being introduced to organizing
1: before I knew the word organizing.
0: That's wonderful. So, So it was, it was in your blood.
1: Well, and it's part of the heritage of the black church in our country, yes. that that is an organizing space, right? Um, those movements. And has that come into your work in the Episcopal church in your ministries?
2: Yes, I, yeah, I started organizing in college. Um, uh, they were making decisions about how to bring in the next president without student voices. And I was like, oh no, wait a second. And I organized a movement to get a few students on the committee to make sure that students had a voice as the next president was being called and i just carried i mean that spirit just carried over and now i believe that organizing has both internal and external implications for how we do church i follow the industrial areas foundations universals um and i think Sorry, they're, um, they're yeah
0: i'd i'd love to hear about them so that's um, that's <laughs> new to me in the uk so uh, Yeah, if you wouldn't mind giving a summary about what that is,
2: sure, Winnie. I mean, I think uh, IAF began sort of in New York and Boston, Saul Alinsky, Chicago, and this was in the '60s. And it's just it is one of a few different methodologies through which you can organize. And there's ten universals. Um, You don't go where you're not invited. So uh, it's all based in relationship, which I think is is inherently what the gospel says. Uh, That's what most scriptures say. You've gotta be in relationship with the earth. You've gotta be in relationship with God's creation. And that includes um, the people. Uh, So don't do for others what they can do for themselves is another universal. Listening is a universal. And organized people and organized money creates change. And so these are things that, that apply to the church as well
1: it's not kind of party aligned or philosophical. Is that correct?
2: Correct. So another universal is no permanent enemies, no permanent allies. And so it is nonpartisan. You work with whoever is willing to work with you. Uh, and all of that is attained through relationships. So you have to be able to, to talk across party lines, across uh, theological and um, just across differences be willing to work with whoever's willing to work with you.
0: You mentioned that when you first began organizing, it was because there were some student voices that weren't being heard. And I wonder for the organizing that you do now, which are the voices which aren't being heard and what are you doing to amplify those voices?
2: Sure. Currently uh, the church of the epiphany is focused on working with those who are experiencing homelessness. Those who are chronically unhoused Our current you know, what we're working on right this moment is uh, the mayor, the mayor of DC says that she wants a moral budget. Uh, And so a moral budget for those who are fighting for affordable housing and access to housing and getting people off the streets looks like uh, committing financial resources in the, in the city, in the district budget to um, giving, getting people shelter. So there's a lot of uh, faith institutions working with social services to ensure or demand rather that her budget be reflected of the morals that she has named. Um, so that's one one thing we're doing within the church. A lot of what I do is help people claim their voice. I use mine if and when necessary, but everybody has power, right? Power is the ability to act, yet The systems that are in place tend to feel as if people are being stripped of their power. And at some point, we begin to internalize that. And so you can see it when people walk with their heads down, their backs hunched over, and they come into the church just defeated by the world. Uh, Part of what I feel called to right now is just saying, no, you you have power. You are are worthy of going to these city council meetings and saying, I deserve to be included in this budget.
1: What I hear in your story, Glenna, is, and it's it's so compelling for this time in our history, is that it's a reclamation of our history, of American history, right? That that if we don't know that history, we can't organize correctly. We can't properly organize ourselves. And maybe a, a something, to, you know, a, a marker for that would be, you know, in Washington DC, people, you know, the encampments that, that were created after enslaved people were freed, right, um, that in DC, because there was nowhere to go, right? So I'm from Texas, like right? after Juneteenth, there was nowhere to go. Um, there was nowhere to be free, you had to go be back, be employed by the same people, if they ever chose to pay you, or you had to flee. And so part of the, the black experience in America is that so many people are so brilliant that they found a way through this trauma. Um, but but so many people are stuck in cycles of this trauma of this displacement of literally just camping at the door of Mr. Lincoln and saying, "What do we do now?" And you can go to the, you can go to our capital and find encampments in walking distance of all of our federal buildings, encampments mm-hmm. of people that are unhoused. Um, and so I'm one um, how, so that, that how our history, how we know who we are, how, what, what's brought us here, what's brought us to this moment, seems to be so compelling and important in then how we recognize our power and not just our lack of capacity, not our defeatedness, um, but then you know, deciding we're we're in this together, um, and that's not a democratic commitment or a Republican commitment or a or just frankly our own voice or our own um, our own uplift, right? That right. part of the community, like the part of the, the heritage of the Black movement, I think is, is, is an up, uplift of the community. Um, right. So it seems to me that you just bring so many of these pieces together and then are doing this work as a priest and an organizer. And um, I guess to the larger question we've asked, um, can you tell us about stepping into that identity as yours? Though it sounds like it's always been a part of you.
2: It, it's always been a part of me. I would learned a little bit in New York, which is when we first sort of bumped into each other and I started taking classes at Union. And then when I moved to Baltimore and I was serving two churches, The first thing I did, of course, is, you know, learn about the community. West Baltimore has suffered through generations of divestment. And you can really, you really saw it after the 1968 race riots, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And so that, those neighborhoods in West Baltimore, as what they call it is white flight, as White folks moved out of West Baltimore up into the county. Uh, they just left lots of vacant buildings, vacant houses. One of the first things I had to do was learn about, you know, sometimes I would, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to go shopping in Hamden. And people are like, oh, no, Black people don't go to Hamden. And I was like, oh, OK, I didn't know. Um, these are things in Tulsa. Yes, I knew we're Black. In Atlanta, I knew where Black people don't hang out. Well, rather, Georgia, Atlanta is fine. So I had to learn as much as I could from books and, and listening to Voices, the Black Experience. Somebody, as, we, as I'm talking, learning about equity right now, uh, someone says, you have to know how these inequities were born. Where did they come from? Um, and then you can begin to do the hard, long work of dismantling that. But if you don't know where it comes from, you're just spinning your, your wheels. And so using my voice to teach, again, it's about listening to people. What is it that you'd like to see? This is one of the, you know, in organizing, you, you do these one-on-ones and you meet with people and, you know, you just go sit at, in churches or schools or kitchen um, tables. And you say, you know, if anything can be better in your community, what would it be? And sometimes you hear something as simple as, you know, it would be great if the streetlights were on at night so that the drug deals don't happen. On my corner, uh, okay, cool. You know we can we can organize. Who else is who else wants the street lights to be turned on? And then all of you go down to city hall or to your city council person and say, "We want our street lights on." Me going by myself as pastor, that that's compelling, but I'm inherently transient. Um, but the people who've been living there for twenty years who are registered voters for, you know, all of their lives. 200 coming, a whole Park Heights community showing up. No elected official wants to deal with that. So it's easier to just put some lamps, <laughs> bulbs in the streetlight.
0: And I guess um, as a priest, what is it about your vocation which helps to ground you? You know, what areas or aspects of theology have informed? this practice for you, you know, so what's the distinctive of you being there in the room?
2: I, you know, in parts of this country, uh, clergy are still respected um, when you walk into a political space. And I think my understanding of, you know, God's creation is that inherently most people want to do good. And so I see my role as helping them figure out how to do that good and i also understand that how i understand the gospel is that god is calling me to be a co-creator of uh, a beloved community to do my part as part of the body of christ Uh, and this is the part that i've been called to i i have the gift of being able to see systems and how systems can help either uplift or destruct uh, and so I use that gift that God has given to uh, you know, proclaim sight to the blind or uh, all of that stuff that's outlined in Luke four that,
1: that we are called to do as, as followers of Christ. Well, and the, it's, it's powerful to hear. I think it's one of the, it's something that organizing teaches us, right? That the work is long and slow and doesn't rely on us, that, that. that that we stay in for a long time. And I do think it's one of the dangers of not knowing our history or not having an organizing model is, um, you know, we just worked on bail reform here in New York and you get slapped right back, right? Mm -hmm. It's because that's, that's how the, that if you know your history, that's how it has to happen, frankly. And, and it, it means we're in, you know, we're in because these are real people's lives for a really long time in these systems. And yet, right, there are moments when the symbol of who we are as clergy um, in these bodies, in the, these political realities um, are transformative. And as was pointing out, our particular voices. So one of those moments for me with you is that you are, there's a picture of you with a Capitol building behind you um, and you are setting the table um, for Eucharist. Um, can you tell us about that? Cause I remember saying that and like, like stepping back, it's so powerful. That was a, and that actually happened across the country.
2: It was a morning into unity um, movement. So it 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 was at St. Luke's. They did one in Atlanta. Uh, they did one at St. John the Divine in New York. Um, and then the, the culmination of all of those um, vigils was at Black Lives Matter Plaza, right in front of actually the White House. It was just such. I don't I don't actually have all the word the adjectives. To, it was a beautiful moment of. Faith leaders, ecumenical faith leaders, gathered to pray together, to be at table together. Uh, people who were walking by, tourists, came and joined us and prayed with us. Uh, it was nonpartisan. We we just we just prayed for healing, for peace. Uh, we mourned together. You know, part of in all of the scriptures, there is lamentations. Um, again, if you don't if you don't grieve appropriately, right? You get stuck in that that anger, that frustration, that sadness, and so being able to to lament publicly, uh, and then recommit ourselves to continuing the efforts for for peace and reconciliation. What, was, when was it, that? Um, it Was right
1: before the election, so October, I believe. Well, I so was after that that. That whole summer of action all over the city, all over the country, and the grief of that, and summers and summers of that kind of marching every summer in this country. Um, we then come to uh, the election, post-election. Um, our former president, um, St. John's. You all. Um, my sense was that the Diocese of Washington showed up and um, kind of represented a lot of us around the country in holding vigil there. Can you tell us about about that time?
2: Sure, I it, I will say that it was very traumatic. So I had gone down to the church, uh, and St. John's Lafayette Square was set on fire. Part of the basement, and it quickly put out. Uh, just a, a small part, a small portion of the of the building it was the new in the new construction. So none of the historical uh, part was was destroyed. Uh, but, you know, any any time that a violation occurs, it's it's a violation. And the church came out to support the protesters, as well as to show support for our sibling community, you know. And so there were lots of us out that night. That day It was probably the second or third day of of protest. They were peaceful protests. <coughs> I've got videos though, they were tear gassing. They were small, just things of gas that, that they would throw out to disperse the crowd. I guess that was, they were managing us or something. Um, so we had water and snacks. And so some of the snacks and stuff were being staged at Epiphany and we were just bringing them down and um, clergy were taking turns just, just praying with, with people. And right next to us, we had, uh, a group of young, you know, people who were helping people get tear gas out of their face and and had extra masks and all of the things that you would need. And it was, I, you know, it was one hundred and fifty thousand degrees outside. Um, it was just so hot, and everybody was just really, you know, calm but but vocal. And so there the, there was a seven o'clock curfew, and so we were we were there. I started to leave with a with a colleague you know at 6:30 6:45 I st- you- and I hadn't seen some of some of our unhoused friends in a while and this is something that people haven't really talked about but those protests displaced already displaced people so in those parks and on those areas there were unhoused people who slept on the street on the steps of St. John's that was their home and they were displaced by protesters so I was just listening to some of the you know, the frustration, you know, that people were saying, we've been dealing with this for all these years and all of a sudden, all these young white people are coming down here and messing up our, you know, just, but but so I was listening, um, but noting that it was getting late. Also noting that there was an armed presence um, sort of gathering in the space. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm ready to go now and get out of here. And literally as I got into my car, just, you know, the truck started rolling in, police cars started rolling out. I recorded it. It was really stressful. And then uh, my mom called me and she's screaming on the phone, Glenna, where are you? They're they're tear gassing people. Glenna, they have batons. I was like, what are you talking about? What are you, where, what are you talking about? she's like, at the White House, where are you? Where are you? And I was like, I've got to pull over. uh, what we learned was that the space was cleared. All of this happened before seven o'clock. So prior to the curfew, the space was cleared by force so that the president could come over and take a picture. And so he took his picture in front of St. John's Lafayette Square, which of course is understood to be the president's church. Um, but yeah, and then what do you do next? I, I think that's what we struggled with as as uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, how in what ways does the bishop use her voice? Uh, the National Cathedral was uh, also figuring out, what do we do? How do we respond to this? The um, presiding bishop, uh, Michael Curry, was trying to figure out how to respond to this. And then us on the ground, like, where do we go? You don't wanna alienate the, the people in, in our pews who are Republican, who did support this particular president. And this was a very, and continues to be, a very sensitive space. Uh, and I think that was, that was what we were trying to figure out how to do in the aftermath of, of that photo opportunity.
1: So Glenn, as you were saying, um, and kind of building on that, what does it mean, um, wh- or how do you think about your ministry in your place um, right now? What does it mean that you and your body with your history and your um, gifts, what, like, how are you doing this? How are you holding this big picture together?
2: Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I, I really know. Again, I go back to the universals, no permanent enemies, no permanent allies. I'm called to preach the gospel, the good news of God in Christ. And I, I do that um, in a, in a way that's inter, intersectional. When I offer how I interpret the gospel, it is through the lens of a, uh, African-American woman at a, in a particular social class. And I claim all that and race, class, gender, those are the, the things that intersect. And I name that as part of how I'm interpreting the gospel. And I hope that that doesn't It will, it does, Ailey. I've had people walk out of the sanctuary while I'm preaching, but I also stand by the fact that I'm preaching the good news of God in Christ as outlined in the gospel.
0: Wow. Thank you. My gosh. Now, then, on, um, uh, so there's, uh, we've talked about physical platforms and rootedness, but also you have a, a virtual presence as well. And on Twitter, you talk about yourself as being a grace extender. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that moniker came about, and and uh, what that means to you?
2: Oh, I you know I just
0: before you say it, yeah before you want to just say because this podcast is 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 good race uh, G race you know so right, it's right. a kind of God and race it's it's kind of in there so um you know this is on point.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, I that I now I'm making that connection. It's I have been so blessed by people who have just. Forgiven me and invited me in in ways that I never would have imagined or even asked for Right now. I'm thinking about as as currently in in South Africa. There's there's uprisings political uprisings People are taking to the streets. I remember being in I met uh, Archbishop Tutu so many years ago when he was at uh, Emory and he was uh, worshiping at the church that I was attending and I had the opportunity to be with him in South Africa and, and we were in Soweto and all of these people that I would have imagined are just huge, political figures, huge. I mean, they just had names and letters behind their names. And uh, uh, Bishop Tutu turned to me in the midst of all of these really great, historically wonderful people and said, daughter, uh, do you want to come to my chapel with me and pray? And I was like, oh, me? Yes. Um, And I thought that's the kind of person I want to be, like just to be able to to just welcome anybody and everybody in. Um, There's a mutual acquaintance or friend or mentor, Winnie, uh, the now deceased right Reverend Barbara C. Harris. I would run into her frequently and I'd say, Oh, Barbara uh, Bishop Harris! It's so good to see you. My name is Glenna Huber. Glenna Reed. And she's like, I know who you are, Glenna. And I was like, Oh wow, this woman who has done so much in the American church. She was the first African American bishop in the uh, Episcopal Church of the United States. And and she and she remembered my name. Uh, there are people who, during my lean times, uh, made sure that I was eating. Um, that made sure that I had access to transportation. I, you know, there are just so many people who have done huge and small things to allow me to be where I am today, who I am today. And I just, I, I feel like it is, you know, with great privilege comes great responsibility.
0: Glenna, you've given a really beautiful description of how people have seen you. Um, in particular, and the blessing and the benefit that uh, that that has had. Um, You've spoken about being able to see systems as, as one of your gifts, and we've had a good discussion about power and giving voice to the voiceless. I wonder, your church is called Epiphany, that sense of an announcement of something new coming into the world. What do you think might that announcement be, and how can we best be ready for it when it comes.
2: Right. I, I'm i not sure exactly what that announcement's going to be. I think that we are uh, in a place where we have the opportunity to find out as a nation, to find out where we're going as we regard uh, folks who are, are different, historically underrepresented people. Uh, I, I think something is about to be birthed. And I think that we have spent the last few years as an earth, as a church, as, as a nation, uh, groaning in labor pains and something in my role right now as a leader to prepare my congregation to be able to hear what God is calling us into um, so that we'll be ready to receive it and respond to where God would have us to go.
1: I've taken a lot of liberty in calling you a friend and inviting you to this, but I, um, I've i admired you from a distance. I continue to admire your work. I'm so glad that you're a leader in our church. You have a, a beautiful style of leadership and an important method, frankly, and, and gift and also just skill um, and time in a particular kind of leadership that is so important um, in our country and in our church. And I'm very, very grateful for you. Thank you for taking this time with us.
2: Thank you. It's great to be with you and to talk in this way.
0: So Thanks. that is um another conversation please do um share this these are important conversations that need to be heard far and wide we're so grateful to glenna i as ever am grateful to uh, to winnie and maybe next time we'll be speaking from speaking to you from atlanta so that's very exciting you know and uh and so thank you very much everyone for listening to g race and i guess in a moment you're gonna hear (<|ha|>) etc thanks rosie for producing
1: Jenna Huber was talking to Azariah France-Williams and Winnie Varghese. Randolph Matthews composed the music. Grace was produced by me, Rosie Dawson. You can find more episodes at heartedge.org or from Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please do leave a comment, subscribe and share Grace with your friends.